I could never have guessed that it would be the weekend before Election Tuesday that I would be preaching on Daniel chapter 12. We started this back in June. We decided, because of the election, to go through the book of Daniel. I had no idea how long it would take to get through, but lo and behold, we know from last week it's not a coincidence, it's a God incidence that we're ending right before the election. And I started out by confessing to you that I had believed for a long time that it really was impossible to hold on to your Christian convictions and your godliness and serve in politics and serve in government. And then God convicted me about that. One guy that convicted me about that was Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. You see Joseph rising to power in what government? Do you remember? The government of Egypt, a godly man in a pagan government, rising to a place of extreme influence, prime minister of Egypt, without compromising his beliefs in God. And then add on top of that, this wonderful guy we've gotten to know over the last number of months named Daniel, who basically spends his entire adult life serving the pagan Babylonian government. He outlives the Babylonian government and he makes it into the Medo-Persian government, but he spends his entire uncompromised life of prayer and of conviction and of heart for his people and of heart even for the people there in Babylon. He spends his entire life dedicated to serving God and serving in this pagan government as a godly man. And won't you agree that we know that there are and we can certainly use more godly people serving in the American government to do God's work there by serving in that capacity. And I'll tell you what, I've been up to D.C. and I've met with lots of people up there and there are some wonderful people up there in D.C. serving God by serving in government. So that was my conviction. And part of the reason we got into the book of Daniel was the reminder that God rules in the affairs of men and he gives places of power to whom he will. He gives it to Babylon for a time and then he takes it away from Babylon. He has his purposes. He gives it to the Medes and the Persians and he takes it away from them. He gives it to Alexander the Great and takes it away. All of human history, all of the empires of the world have all been under the control and the procedures and the lifting up and the putting down of God himself. He's ultimately in charge of every human government. And all of this is leading to one final world-dominating government that who will sit at the head of? Does anybody know? Who's going to be in charge of the final world government? Antichrist. Antichrist. Jesus will be in charge of the final heavenly government on earth, but the final world empire, God opposing world empire, will be the Antichrist. So we painstakingly marched our way from chapter 10, where, which was the beginning, the introduction to Daniel's vision, his final vision. Daniel now, an 85, 90-year-old guy, still in Babylon, worried about his people, praying about his people. Chapter 10 introduces us to that. Then in chapter 11, Daniel was given this extremely detailed, I think it was 135 specific prophecy or prophetic details that all were filled historically. And we marched through them detail by detail. And I'm glad we're done with that. Check that off the list. So we left off with having jumped from Antiochus Epiphanes, this ruler of the north, at the time of the Maccabean rule in between the Old and New Testament, And we saw how all these things just lined up and fit perfectly, the abomination of desolation and how Antiochus did that. But then we started to read about things that weren't fulfilled in Antiochus or don't seem to have a fulfillment after him. And we realized that prophetically we jumped from Antiochus 
all the way to Antichrist. Jumped a couple thousand years by our time. And we're talking now not about a historical figure in the past. We're talking about a historical figure and time in the future. And all of prophecy from God's standpoint, all of the world revolves around the Jews, his people. And I'll explain how we fit into all this as we go through. But ultimately, all this has to do for Daniel to Daniel's people, the people that God chose, that God birthed onto planet Earth, the miracle of the Jewish people. So we ended up with Antichrist, and we're going to begin back with this time of the end. Look at verse 1 of Daniel 12. It says, at that time, what time? The time of the end. Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So we see this involves whose people? Daniel's people. It involves what time? The time of the end. And it involves who? This angel, archangel, one of only two named angels in the Bible, this archangel Michael, who's evidently been waiting or seated or something like that. But now the angel tells Daniel that Michael stands up. Now, some of you know, I wasn't born Pastor Steve. I worked in bars for years and years and years. And when someone picked a fight with somebody else who was seated and that person stood up, you know you got a fight on your hand. So now, Antichrist has been coming onto the scene at this last period here, and now Michael is going to engage in the battle himself. Whenever Michael stands up, you got a battle on your hands. And Michael seems to be specifically the angel in the Bible whose job it is. It says he's the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So Michael's directly related to all things Jewish, all things Israel. So what's going to happen when Michael stands up? Well, it says there's going to be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Maybe you've seen the difference between having a time to remember versus having a time we won't soon be able to forget. There's a difference. 2020 has been a time we won't soon be able to forget. High school prom, maybe that was a time to remember. 2020 time not soon to be forgotten. Well, CNN had an article that caught my attention, something to add to this. The UN warns that the world risks becoming an uninhabitable hell. So there's that to look forward to. Uh, (laughs) This is what the article said. There's been a staggering, staggering rise in natural disasters over the past 20 years. And of course, this article is about climate change. The climate crisis is to blame I seem to think God has something to do with this, but this is a secular article. This comes out of the United Nations. And for those of us that have paid attention to end times prophecy, we recognize that Jesus spoke about what kind of things will be happening on earth and an increase in things like natural disasters are part of the birth pains. Jesus compares his coming to a giving of birth. So all throughout history, you've got, as a woman is getting ready, she goes into labor and she gets contractions. At first, they're more minimal and they're farther apart. But then as the labor ramps up, as things really get rolling, the contractions, ladies, come on, talk to me. They get a lot easier. Almost you don't even know they're there. I never felt a thing. I don't know what difference. But no, they get really intense and they get more intense. And how do you know when the baby's coming? What happens to the contractions? Do they get farther apart? They get closer together until they're so close and they're so intense that you know the baby is just about to come. And boom. They become. So in the illustration, it's Jesus is coming. 
not his first coming, his second coming, when he sets up his kingdom on earth. And he compares it to this birth pangs, because you might say, well, pastor, come on, don't give us that natural disasters thing. There's always been natural disasters. And you'd be right, because there's always been, since the time of Christ, there's always been birth pains. In other words, we go through seasons where things seem to be getting really bad, and everybody goes, oh, Christ is coming back. And then it seems to calm down a little bit. And then it gets really bad again, and then it calms down. Well, what CNN is reporting and what those that keep track of these things are saying is that things are getting, just what the Bible says, steadily worse. The article says between 2000 and 2019, there were 7,348 major natural disasters. I'm not going to tell you how they decide what a major natural disaster is. To me, it's anything that includes my house, but they might have a different, <laughs> different way of measuring that. 7,348 This includes earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes. These disasters claimed 1.23 million lives. They affected 4.2 billion people and resulted in $2.97 trillion in global economic losses. That's according to the UN. So that's almost double. Remember, that was 2000 to 2019. And that number is almost double the 4,212 disasters that were recorded from 1980 to 1999. So what they're saying is the 20 years previous, we had a certain amount. 20 years after that, it has now doubled in 20 years the amount of natural disasters. The report found floods, storms, heat waves, droughts, hurricanes, and wildfires have all significantly increased in the past 20 years. So is this just a birth pain or is Jesus coming back? I don't know, but I'm not going to wait to find out. I'm going to encourage you, get saved now. Don't wait to find out what this is. So this is what is being said here, that these things are going to ramp up and ramp up until at the time of the end, there's going to be a time of trouble, distress, adversity, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. It's going to be worse than ever. So maybe I can comfort you by saying things might be bad now, but oh, it's going to get worse. So hang in there. There's a time at the end that will demonstrate unprecedented distress. And I think many that kind of keep their fingers on the pulse of these things have seen what the pandemic has caused. It's baffled the scientific community. And we've seen what it's caused psychosocially. We've seen what it's caused educationally. We've seen what it's caused economically. We've seen what it's caused politically. We see the ripples going out. And some are now talking about it. Some have taken note of the World Economic Forum talking about the Great Reset. Has anybody seen that? I've seen different versions of this, but I went to the World Economic Forum website. This is a conglomerate of both private sector and government that are all working in conjunction with the UN looking at how the pandemic has affected the world, especially the economic diversity and disparity in how this pandemic has affected the poor versus the rich, which is exactly what the Bible says. That when these plagues and when these sicknesses happen, that they have a disproportionate effect on the poor over the rich. So what this is opening is an opportunity to say, hey, we need to think globally. We need to have a new world order, a new global social contract. And it all sounds so positive. But these are the kind of things that open the door for Antichrist and a new world economy and a one world government, a one world religion, all these things. So the time is set right now as much as it's ever been for these things to take place. Unprecedented distress. We call it the time of the tribulation. It's the 70th week of Daniel. If you were here for Daniel 9, there was 69 weeks of prophetic history. Then Jesus was rejected at his triumphal entry and the clock stopped on God's prophecy. 
And we live in what's called the time of the Gentiles. God turns his attention to non-Jews and the spirit of God is poured out on me and you, the church age. You can also call it the church age. And we're living in this prophetic timeout called the church age until all of the Gentiles, the non-Jews that are going to be saved, are saved. And then God will turn his attention back to the Jews during this final week of Daniel, this final seven-year period. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. We call it the tribulation, the great tribulation, a time of God's wrath, God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. So where will you and I be? Where will the church be? I'm at what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. Has anybody heard the word rapture in connection with the Bible? So this may be new ground for you, and I'm sorry. It can be kind of confusing. Just read your Bible. You'll figure it out. The word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. The Greek word is harpazo, and it means to be snatched away, caught up. You can read about it in Thessalonians, and I'll show you the connection here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord— will certainly not proceed or go before those who have fallen asleep. So there are going to be people that live and die and live and die before the Lord comes back, right? Yes, we got you, Pastor. Now, they thought that people who had died before Jesus came back had missed out on the resurrection and the Lord's return. They missed out on it. But he says, no, that's not the case. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. Listen to this with the voice of the archangel, the archangel. Who's that? Michael. And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. We're not going to die. People that live at the time of the rapture are not going to die. They're just going to be transformed on the way up. And after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up. Harpazo, snatched away. In Latin, it's raptus or rapture together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the rapture of the church. Amen. And Paul says, hey, comfort each other with these words, so I hope you feel comforted. We're out of here, because we are not subject to God's wrath. Listen, for you, for me, for us, all of God's anger against the sin in my life, all of God's anger against the sin in your life, he's satisfied. Why is he satisfied? He's satisfied because it was all put on Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So God doesn't look at you and go, I'm so angry with you. You ever felt like God is angry with you? Then you've misunderstood the cross. The propitiation, the satisfaction for sin is what Jesus is. He's the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. So God is satisfied. So when it comes to a time of God expressing his discontentment, his anger, his wrath on the world, the church isn't part of that. So once the church is out, then God will carry out the seven-year period. Antichrist will be involved with that. And that will be also called the time of Jacob's trouble. And at that time, that verse says, your people shall be delivered or escape or be saved out of everyone who is found written in the book So at the end, there'll be unprecedented distress, but there'll also be a dramatic rescue. Of who? Who is going to be rescued at that time? The church? No, we've already come to know Christ. We're there. We're believers. We're connected to Christ. We're going to be taken out. But then during that time, who does God turn his attention back to? Who has rejected Christ? The Jews have rejected Christ. Even to this day, there's a movement of God. There's a movement of the Spirit 
among Jewish people, but largely the Jews are still a secular people. They're Jewish by nationality, but not by belief in the God of the Bible. There are still the Orthodox and all of that, the Pharisees of our own day, but God will turn his attention back to Israel. And ultimately, Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. Well, pastor, how's that going to happen? Well, they rejected Christ. So if you reject Christ, what do you get? What do you accept? You accept Antichrist. When the truth looks bad, when the truth looks like a lie, then the lie starts to look like the truth. So they accept this world leader, the Antichrist. He does some things for them. He comes alongside of them. He's positive toward the Jews, helps them rebuild their temple. Three and a half years into the seven-year period, he sets himself up in the temple that he's helped them build and demands to be worshipped as God. That's the abomination that leads to desolation. And at that time, the Jews are going to realize they have been duped. And it's going to cost them dearly. Zechariah 12.10 tells us a little bit more. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and mercy, so that when they look on me, this is God speaking, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah never got pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They are going to ask him, where did you get those wounds? They're going to ask Jesus and he's going to say, I got them in the house of my friends. And God will pour out his spirit. The dry bones will live. Their eyes will be opened and they will finally see Jesus for who he always was, their savior but it's going to take a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache, a lot of distress over centuries to finally be humbled. So they're going to be delivered. So that's good news to Daniel. Daniel wants to know what's going to happen to my people. They're going to go through a lot of distress over lots of centuries and lots of world powers. But eventually, at the time of the end, the marking of that is the Jews will be rescued. God is not done with the Jews. Will everyone be rescued? What's it say here? All the Jews everyone who's found written in the book. What book do you think Daniel's being told about? Anybody take a guess? Not the Bible. I'm not in the Bible. Well, I mean, I am, but not directly. Philippians 4.3 talks about the book of life. Revelation 3.5 talks about not having your name blotted out of the book of life. Revelation 13.8, the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Whose book is it? It's Jesus's book. Revelation 20, 15, whoever's not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, the last judgment, the great white throne judgment. Revelation 22 talks about people who have their names taken out of the book of life. Again, it's interesting as you do a study on this, you see a lot of discussion about having a name blotted out of the book of life, but there's nothing about having your name written into the book of life. So some speculate, and I think for good reason, that everybody's name is written in the book of life. But then when you reject God and his son, then your name gets blotted out. So you don't have to win the game. It's yours to lose. It's already been paid for for you. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's already been paid for. Your name's already on the guest list. But you have to decide you don't want to go to the party. And then if you say, God, I don't want to come to the party, the eternal party with your son, your son at the center of the throne, then God will say, okay, I will blot your name out. Those of us that are part of the church are, again, already be there. 
So all this happening during that seven-year period. Verse 2, as we make blistering speed through Daniel 12, you brought lunch, right? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And many, a great amount of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, we're not talking about people that lay down to go to sleep. It's a euphemism for dying. Those who were killed during the tumultuous history of the Jewish people, they're going to be startled out of sleep. Again, we're not talking about sleep. Literally, we're talking about sleep as a euphemism for death. They're going to be woken up from death. What do we call that, church? Resurrection. So the end will involve not one, but really two resurrections. I'll get to that in a minute. I've been reading a Dietrich Bonhoeffer book. Anybody know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, pastor during the Nazi Germany, and in its book called Letters and Papers from Prison? And I'm just preparing for whatever comes next in our lives, just saying. Letters and Papers from Prison, and over his prison cell, someone had written, in a hundred years, it will all be over. And the sentiment of that was to help whoever was in the cell before him endure, reminding him that this isn't going to last forever. So it's a great sentiment. The problem is this is one of only a few verses in the Old Testament that talk to us about resurrection and the fact that in a hundred years, it's not going to be all over. In a billion years, it's not going to be over. In a quadzillion years, is that even a number? It's not going to be all over. Everybody lives eternally. And we have this idea that, well, resurrection is for the Christians, but the non-Christians, well, they just get annihilated. They disappear, they die, and then they cease to exist anymore. That's not what the Bible teaches. I wish it was but it's not. The Bible teaches eternal existence for everybody, and it says it here, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You can read about all this in the book of Revelation. John sees, he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, and because of the word of God, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. So during that seven-year period, it's not going to be all dark, there's going to be the gospel being shared. There's going to be the 144,000 witnesses. There's going to be the two witnesses that lose their lives and then come back to life. There's going to be an angel flying around preaching the everlasting gospel. So people are going to be hearing the word of God during that time. So it will be very costly. If you can't get saved now, don't think, well, I'll get saved when the end really starts to come, when the sky starts to fall, that's when I'll get saved. But when you got to choose not to take the mark of the beast, so you won't be able to shop. You won't be able to just get on Amazon and order something because you've got to have the mark of the beast to do it. And you've got to choose between feeding your family and taking the mark. Those are going to be hard decisions. So now, before this comes down, now is a great time to say, man, I believe. I believe in God. I believe this is true. Revelation 20 talks about the great white throne judgment the books open, the dead are basically held accountable for their lives and are then cast into the lake of fire. So they're resurrected at the end of the millennium. At the end of seven years of tribulation, Jesus sets up his throne, his millennial reign on earth, thousand years. And after that is the final resurrection where death and Hades are all cast into the fire and all of that happens. So that's kind of the big picture. So I like the word everlasting because the word olam in Hebrew is the vanishing point a vanishing point as far as I can see. Like, I can't see forever. I can't see into the forever future. I have a vanishing point. You go outside, you look in the distance, you're in a desert, there's a vanishing point. 
past which I can't see. But that doesn't mean there's nothing past there. I mean, you want to blow your mind? Think about looking up into the sky. There's a vanishing point. You can't see past a certain point, but what's behind that point? How far can you go in the universe and get to the end of it? And if you get to the end of it, what's on the other side? They're crazy questions. There's a vanishing point. So what Daniel's being told is that some are raised to have life beyond what we see as a vanishing point. There's more beyond there, and it's called eternity. And God has put it in our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. God has put eternity. Every one of us knows that we know that we know that this life can't be it. And people are trying to become immortal through all kinds of scientific means and trying to figure out the key to longevity and all that. God's put it in our hearts. Don't ignore it. That's a message from God in your heart. This life isn't it. So after death, everybody's raised. Some to life past the vanishing point. It's life with God, an eternity of singing and fellowship with God, fellowship around the throne. But some people don't want that. They don't even want to come to church on Sunday. Why would God force people who hate him, who have no interest in him, who disagree with him, who don't believe in him, why would God force them to dwell with him eternally? That would be miserable for someone who hated God, wouldn't it? That'd be punishment. And God doesn't want to argue with you through eternity about whether he was right or wrong or what you believe, or if you agree with him or not. He doesn't want to argue with you. So hell exists for people who don't want heaven. It's that simple. Hell exists for people who don't want heaven. And it will be everlasting shame, which is interesting because guilt is what you feel when you do wrong. Shame is what you feel when you are wrong. It's about your identity and your person. Guilt is about your behavior. Shame is about your identity. So everlasting shame is this sense of God had put eternity in my heart. I knew that there was more to life than just chasing the dollar, chasing business, chasing whatever, but I ignored it. God has created you for his purposes, to be an object of his love, to walk with him in fellowship, and to be conformed to the image of his son. And people that realize that, that yield their lives to God, God can take them like a potter takes clay and shape them into what they were always meant to be. Do you really believe that God has had a purpose and a plan for your life all along, that you're not just an accident? It's just like a potter has an idea in his mind. I'm going to make this vessel. I have a purpose for it. I'm going to make it and I'm going to shape it. And then he fulfills his will through that. You can never, ever become what you were truly meant to become until you give your life to God to mold. And some people will live their entire lives never fully realizing what they were meant to become because they have kept God at a distance. And then when they die and they face judgment, all of the books will be open, all of their deeds. And I wonder if God won't show you what could have been. That would be pretty horrible. There's going to be a lot of regrets and a feeling of shame that that's what I gave up. You mean I lived my life for this and I could have had that. And then you're going to dwell with that feeling. I'm not making it up. I'm just telling you what it says right here. A time of shame and everlasting intent. The time of eternal shame is to eternally know that you were meant for more. You could have been different. You could have lived for God and you could have become what you were always intended to become, but you chose to reject that. And now you'll have to live with that idea, that understanding for the rest of eternity in loneliness, in isolation, in lovelessness, in darkness. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? 
I didn't write it. Those who are wise, verse 3, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So he talks about during that time of tribulation, there will be great opportunity. There's going to be distress, there's going to be resurrection, and there's going to be opportunity. Those who are wise will be acting wise and causing other people to act wisely. And they're going to shine. 18 times that word is translated to teach or to warn. But in the context of the brightness of the firmament, the visible sky, it means to shine forth. A teacher or an instructor shines forth knowledge, puts out light, so to speak. So that's why it's translated shall shine. But there will be people, as I mentioned, during the tribulation time that are going to risk their lives to let others know the truth about God and about who Jesus really was. And they're going to be beheaded and they're going to starve and they're going to go through tremendous persecution. But Daniel's learning that those who are wise are going to shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many or cause many to be turning to righteousness like stars forever and ever. I love the winter sky. Like one of my favorite things about winter, I'm glad I don't live in the city because you can't see the sky. There's all this ambient light and you can't see the stars. So we go out at night in the winter and the sky is just dark. And you just look up and the sky is filled with these little lights. And we call them stars. And they've been shining for centuries and centuries and centuries. I heard a story a while ago that impacted me and I think it'll maybe impact you. How many of you love going with fireworks? Fourth of July fireworks. We used to have a big fireworks celebration over at Lake Monticello and you go to the fireworks, everybody brings their chairs, everybody's excited and you camp out and the fireworks start and everybody's cheering and clapping and ooing and eyeing and they're bright and they're impressive and everybody is really intrigued by them and really awestruck by them. And I heard Pastor Chuck of Calvary Chapel tell the story about going to the fireworks and then after they're over, everybody applauds. Hey, that was fantastic. And then they leave. And Chuck and his wife would just sit there on the ground looking up. And after the smoke cleared, they then could finally see the stars again. See, the stars get eclipsed for a time by these things that come in and they're loud and they're exciting. And everybody goes, oh, how glorious they are. And, and everybody goes, well, I want to be fireworks. I want people to notice me. I want to be glorious on my Instagram account or I want to be glorious in my Facebook page. If that's the glory you're looking for, that's the only glory you'll ever know. But people that turn others, not by what they say. Do stars say anything? Not with words. They just shine. People that just shine the truth of God. And because of their testimony, turn others to say, you know, whatever you have, I want that too. You might not shine a lot today, but there might be other people that are shining brightly. They're glorious. They're like fireworks. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of smoke and a lot of whistles and whatnot but they're going to burn out. They're going to disappear. It's temporary. Are you living for the temporary glory or will you live for the eternal glory? The best time to shine when you see those stars is when the sky is the darkest. You don't see them during the day. You see them when the sky is the darkest. Now is the time for the church to be what the church says it is, what we say we are. We can't settle for just seeing people's vote changed. It's a lot of work to get people to change their vote. People keep coming by my house. I love it when people come to my house to bring me literature because you are now in for a lecture. And I can talk and you know that. 
I don't know how many houses you plan to visit today, Buster, but you came onto my property. Let's have coffee. Bring your literature inside. Let's talk about why. So we're trying to turn people's vote, but the Bible is concerned with turning people's hearts. We can try to have a government that dictates what's right and wrong against people's will, but if people's hearts turn to God, if they see your life, if they see your love, if they see your peace, if they see you living the golden rule, doing to others as you would have others do unto you, and they go, man, I, I want what you have, and their life changes, and their kids' life change, then hear me carefully when I say this. Understand what I'm trying to say. The government can have all the abortion clinics they want. Saved people won't go there because we recognize the sanctity of life. So that's the change we want to see. Don't settle for constraining behavior. We want to see people's hearts changed. Then bars empty out. Abortion clinics have nobody there because the church is doing its job. Listen very carefully. There's one thing you take away from the book of Daniel is that government is not the most powerful force on the face of the earth. The church is. The spirit of God in the church that's why when the rapture happens, there's going to be trouble on planet Earth because the church is going to be gone. Think about what would happen. Think about right now if the church was taken off the planet Earth. Hospitals, orphanages, feeding programs, homeless shelters, schools, all the things that the church does, stripped out of the Earth. It would leave the Earth in a very difficult situation. But you, verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So at the end times, there'll be frantic behavior. And obviously, when he says, Daniel, the vision has ended, and now he tells Daniel, shut up or close up the words and put a seal on them. In other words, to say this is finished, it's closed until the time of the end. So clearly the book's not closed to us, right? We're here reading it. So what does he mean? He says, shut up the words. Interestingly, the Jews do not include Daniel with the prophets. He's included with the history books, with Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, but Daniel's not included with the prophets. Why? Because the Jews don't believe Daniel was a prophet. He was a historian, but they question his prophetic ministry. So what we're going to see happen is when it says, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Traditionally, that's taken to mean at the time of the end, People are going to be traveling everywhere, running frantically around. We see that happening now. And knowledge is going to increase, and it's increasing exponentially in our day. Knowledge is doubling about every 12 hours now. It used to double every 100 years. Now knowledge is doubling every 12 hours. But I don't think that's what it means. I think what we're going to see at the end time, this frantic behavior will be Jews frantically running to and fro, trying to understand their own prophets, like Daniel that Daniel will be opened up, God will open their hearts to understand what Daniel's been trying to say that's been closed to them, and their knowledge of prophecy, their knowledge of the things of the end will increase, and they'll go, ah, how did we miss it? How did we miss it? Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. Got two angels there. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, as they're talking to each other, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. If you've been hanging with us, 
we know that this is a biblical, symbolic way of saying a time is a year, times is two years, and a half a time is a half a year. This has come up in Daniel before. So how long shall the fulfillment of these be? Three and a half years. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So from the time of the rapture, Antichrist will come on the scene. He'll be making world peace. He'll be introducing a one world economy. He'll be gathering up his military three and a half years in. He'll claim to be God, demand to be worshiped as God. The Jews will figure out they've been duped. The last three and a half years will be great tribulation on planet earth. There'll be a quarter of the population will be killed. People will be killing each other. There'll be pestilences. There'll be plagues. A lovely time on planet earth. I say that sarcastically. And that three and a half years, at the end of that, Daniel is told, then the time will come to an end. There will be a humbling of the Jews. Did you see that? And when the power, the hand, or the strength of the holy people has been completely shattered, that's when. It's when your strength is completely shattered that God's anger against you can be appeased because you'll turn to him for his salvation. Although I heard, Daniel says, I did not understand Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Maybe you're hearing and not understanding either. You're with Daniel. What's going to be the end? And he said, Daniel, go your way, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, or literally purify themselves, and made white and refined. But the wicked, the morally opposed to God, shall cause to do wickedly, or shall do wickedly, or cause others to do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Being righteous and being wicked in the Bible are always connected to a person's connection or lack of with God. The wicked are those that reject God. The righteous are those that accept and walk with God. So at the end of the times, there will be a time of deepening division. You see the times of intensity and stress increase polarization. Or haven't you been watching the news? Times of stress increase polarization. Do you think this last seven-year period will be a time of stress? Do you think the time, the last three and a half years before Jesus returns is going to be a time of intense stress? So it's going to increase polarization and you'll have some people, well, let me put it to you this way. People are going to either be like oats or eggs. You don't really know how they're going to respond. People are going to respond until you put them in hot water. Anybody like to eat oatmeal? Yeah. What happens to the oats when you put them in hot water? They soften. But what happens to eggs When you put them in hot water, they harden. So people at any time of stress are either going to be like oats or eggs. You can take that to the bank. I'll let you use that if you want. People are going to be like oats or eggs. The question is, which one are you? At a time of distress right now, there's a time of distress. Many people are hearing and can hear the word of God. Some people are being softened by that. The magazine out on the table out there shows that Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, Jack Hibbs, some of you guys know Pastor Jack Hibbs, baptized a thousand people. People that are like oats are going to look at the world they're living in right now, are going to look at the behavior they're seeing, are going to look and think through things that are happening and go, God must be real. I need to put my trust in God now because things aren't getting better and I don't believe they're going to get better. One article said, we are as smart as we've ever been, and we're actually going backwards now. We're getting dumber now. We've kind of hit the pinnacle of human smartness, and now we're getting dumber. 
And I don't think I have to convince you of that. Things are not getting better and better. So many will be purified. They'll purify themselves. They'll repent. They'll turn to God. They'll be made white and they'll be refined morally, spiritually. But the wicked are going to just perpetuate their flow of filthiness and wickedness and want to perpetuate their campaign and their agenda. They won't understand. You can't make them understand. You got relatives like that, can't make them understand. But the wise shall understand. Verse 11, that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. There will be 1,290 days. So at the end, there will be tremendous clarity. This event, the abomination of desolation, under Antiochus, there was a small view of it. Under Antichrist, it's when he demands in the temple to be worshiped as God. That's it, God says, done. No one else gets to be God, just me, God says. So when he sets that up in the temple, that's going to be the clue that you can get your calendar out, get your smartphone out, and you can mark 1,290 days. That's when Jesus is coming back. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And by the way, this is why if you're a mid-tribulation rapture person, the challenge you have is Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. But if you believe that the rapture is happening in the middle of the tribulation, you would know exactly the hour. When you saw the abomination of desolation, you would know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Just saying. So interestingly, this is based on a 360-day year. This is actually three and a half years plus a month. What was that extra month for? Hold on to that question. Let's read verse 12. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. That's 1290 plus another 45 days. What's that all about, pastor? Come close, come close. Let me tell you a secret. You ready for the secret? I have no idea <laughs> what that means. I mean, no idea. Do you want to hear the really good news? No one else does either. If you meet someone and they're going to explain to you, unravel, for $45, you can buy their tapes or their CDs or their, watch their videos on what these numbers mean. Don't do it. They have no idea. Nobody knows. There's speculation. It's possible that the extra 30 days are the days from Jesus' return, the days it takes him to organize his earthly millennial government, that's possible. And then the 45 days, some say, if you read Matthew 25, there is that parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the nations, that Jesus is on his throne when that takes place. So it could be 30 days to set up his government. Now he begins to judge the nations, separating the sheep from the goats. Those that clothed the naked and fed the hungry and cared for the poor and visited the prisoners. Remember, they say, well, when did we do that? When did we do that for you, Jesus? He says, when you did it one of the least of these, you did it to me. To the others that are cast into the hell designed for, made for Satan and his demons, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They're going to be cast into the fire. So it could be that that's taking place. One final note, and then I'll bring this to a close. It's too easy to say, well, I cast my vote. The question that is asked, God's not going to open the books and go, now, let's see, uh, should you be led into heaven? Um, let's see, who did you vote for in the 2020 election? 
because that's what I'm judging everything based on who you voted for in the 2020 election. Take your vote seriously and vote. Pray about it. Consider it and vote. But recognize this. You can't vote away your personal responsibility to love other people. You can't say, well, we voted for a government that would take care of all those things so we don't have to. That's not the gospel. That's not a spirit-filled life. So at the time of judgment, he's saying to you, did you do these things? Did you feed the poor? Did you take care of others? It's really important to God to take care of the less fortunate. Not because the government tells you to do it, because the Spirit tells you to do it. And ultimately, you cannot outsource personal responsibility to walk with Jesus and what that means. So that's just a side note about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Verse 13 says, But you, Daniel, go your way till the end, for you shall rest. Amen to that. Daniel's had a long life. And will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel, the big picture, you're going to close your eyes in this difficult world. And when you open them, as a believer, the first thing you will see is Jesus. And all of this, none of it will matter. Eternity is what's really going to matter. What's going to matter is when you die, what will you see when you open your eyes? Will you see the judgment seat of God and the books open with all of your self-justification about all the good person that you were and all of the things that said that here's some things you did that weren't so good? Or will you see Jesus? It is given unto man once to die, the Bible says, and then the judgment. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once and live forever. So now's the time. The real vote is am I for God or am I against God? the most important vote that you can ever cast. Amen? Amen.